we're doing this um, really enjoyable series in the book of Philippians. And uh, if you've been following from the start or just joining, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're enjoying writing and reading on your own books. And just linking this morning into just what we've done in worship, we're talking all about God being a rock. And if you're reading in the scripture journals from chapter three, you'll see the title that the publishers have given to this chapter is No Confidence in the Flesh, which is kind of a bit like saying, where's your rock? And Paul, in these verses, is going to tell us where he finds his confidence, what he's building his life on. So we're going to uh, read from chapter 3, and it begins with the word further, or if you're reading a different translation, often it's translated finally. And at this point, Paul has basically finished why he wrote the book of Philippians, He's kind of said, thank you for the gift, which was his main intent. But he's just doing that thing where people just think, I I wonder if there's just anything else I want to say. And the rest of the Philippians is just that one more thing that Paul wants to say to these dear brothers and sisters in Philippi. And it's all about Jesus. So we're going to read from verses 1 to 16, and you can follow along on the screen or in your books. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Let's start at the end there, verse 15. It's the definition of Christian maturity right there. What is maturity? Here's something to note. It's nothing to do with how old you are. It's nothing to do with how many years you've been on the planet. It's nothing to do with how much gray hair you have. Although if that was true, I'd be kind of winning a bit by now. It's to do with this. It's to do with how much your heart resonates 
with those words that Paul said about Jesus and whether something in your heart started skipping a beat as we were reading or whether a smile of joy began to spread across your face as we were reading those words or perhaps if you're an internal processor, something in your mind thought, this is so cool, what Paul is talking about. That's in as much as you are feeling and experiencing what Paul experiences and expresses in those verses is probably a good benchmark of how mature you are as a believer. Uh, a few months ago, uh, we had a leaders' gathering in this room. Uh, it was for pastors all across uh, Scotland, and we had a visiting church leader from Brooklyn, New York, called Jim Simbola, who's a remarkable man. He's 82. He's been ministering for decades and decades in a really deprived area within New York, what was very deprived. And they've seen some of the most marginalized, faraway people totally brought back to God and their lives transformed. And he's got story after story after story to tell. And for three hours on this stage, without any notes, he just talked about four things that he was so excited about. Jesus the gospel, the church, and the Holy Spirit. And he just talked and talked and talked. And we all just wrote notes and notes and notes. But in the middle of that, he said, I've got a video to show you. And it was a, video, it was a testimony video of somebody from his church who had hit the dizzy heights of stardom. They were a professional makeup artist in a, sort of a, in, in a movie sort of theater. And and then they'd gone into drugs, their life had hit the bottom, they, they were pretty much dead, living on the street. And they got rescued by somebody, and somebody shared the gospel, and they became a Christian. This testimony was about this person now sharing their testimony in full health, in much a later season of life, saying, look what Jesus has done for me. Now, the story was remarkable, but here was something, here was my takeaway. I was sat on the front row just where Nassim, uh, uh, Nat, Nat. I, I, I pointed at you and then called you Natalie, sorry. Um, Natalie, and, where Nat and Natalie are sitting. And, and, and Jim, Pastor Jim, as he's called, was sitting next to me because I was hosting the meeting. And we're watching this video about this person who's transformed. And I've seen it before because I've watched ahead because I'm responsible for the meeting. And I, so I think, okay, I, I know this video, I've seen it. Jim, he looks at me halfway through the video. This video he's seen a hundred times in his life probably about this person he knows really well. And he thumps me on the knee and he says, Pastor Dan, I won't go on with the American accent. (laughs) He says, Pastor Dan, he says, this never gets old. He says, I can't get over how good Jesus is and how much he changes lives. It gets me every time. I said, yes, it's good, isn't it? That's what us British people do. But he, he had tears in his eyes as he was hearing a story he had heard a thousand times because he was aware of who Jesus was and how good he was. I think the Apostle Paul was like him. There was a church that Jesus wrote a letter to in Revelation 2. And he commends them for their service. It's the church in Ephesus. He commends them for their perseverance, their endurance, their discernment. They have so many good things going for them. Yeah, He says, I've just observed something about you guys. This is Jesus speaking. 
And he says, you don't seem to love me as much as you did at first. And he didn't write that to shame some odd church back 2,000 years ago. Can you believe there was a church or some Christians that didn't love Jesus as much as they used to? Can you believe it? Wow. Isn't it, was there once a church like that in church history? No, that letter is written in scripture because that's the tendency of every church and every Christian in history. That we move away from first love and we have to be pulled back to it. I can't think of a better scripture today that we could read from Philippians 3 that talks about somebody who doesn't seem to have lost their first love for Jesus. Anybody here been to the Camera Obscura in Edinburgh? Anybody done the cheap version where you just go and look in the mirrors outside? (laughs) (laughs) Used to do that with the kids just for fun. It's the cheap version. These mirrors, they distort your image. And you go past one, and one makes you look tall, one makes you look wide, one makes you look short. And here's the danger when we look at Jesus. It gets distorted in the mirror. It gets distorted in the lens. We see a wrong view of Jesus. And today, all of us are perhaps seeing a wrong view which is distorting us, which makes us not think the same way about Jesus as Paul does in these verses. So I think there's three broad areas that Paul talks about in this chapter that we need to see Jesus more clearly in. And here's the first thing, verses 2 to 7, that Jesus is better than religion. Secondly, in verses 8 to 11, that Jesus is more valuable than absolutely everything. And thirdly, verses 12 to 14, that Jesus is the worthiest pursuit that you could ever have in your life, worthy of all your best energy and attention. So let's start with the first of those, verses 2 to 7, that Jesus, Paul says, he's way better than any religious observance that you could fall into. You know, every religion in the world has its code and its community. It has its rules, its beliefs, and it has that group of people who say, yeah, that's, that's what I do. That's what I belong to. And those rules define that community. The danger is if you see Christianity in that self-same way. If you just see it as being, well, it's, it's just a code, And it's a community. We're a lovely community and we believe some things. Paul says, well, yeah, but you seem to have missed the main thing, which is Jesus. It's Jesus at the very center. You miss the most important thing. So Paul starts these verses by taking an absolute chunk out of his opposition people who are saying something different. He doesn't say, isn't it lovely that there's different people saying different things? He says, no, I want to tell you something that's really dangerous about what these people are saying. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. I like it when Paul says things nicely. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by a spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's the backstory. In Acts chapter 15, there are large, large numbers of people coming to know Jesus through the preaching of the gospel, and they come from a Gentile background. Christianity came first to the Jews and then to those who are non-Jews, Gentiles. And as those, believers, as those people became believers and got baptized and were enjoying relationship with God, the follow-up team arrived. 
And nobody had asked this follow-up team to arrive, but they came in and they said, this is so wonderful that you've become Christians. It's such a joy. He said, we are here to help you in your Christian journey. And first things first, we need to get you guys circumcised. And their eyes would open. They said, what? They said, oh, yeah, because don't you understand that Christianity is just a branch of Judaism? It's just, it's just like a little shoot. So if you want to be a true Christian, that means being a true Jew, and Jews always get circumcised if they're male. So apparently F.F. Bruce comments that there were many more um, female converts than male converts to Christianity under this period. But they would take people and say, you've got to be circumcised. And they said, oh, and by the way, here's your pod course, here's your sort of first steps course. I have for you 613 laws in the Torah that you must also obey. Where do you want to start? Tomorrow morning? We could be here till Jesus comes again teaching you how to obey the law. Everything from the stuff that you wear, the clothes you wear, the way you wash and the hygiene you keep and the food you eat and even the holidays you go on. You've got to like camping if you're a Jew. Feast of Tabernacles once a year for a week. And all these new believers are like, all right, okay, is this, what, is this what Christianity is? It was so important that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, so they went to Jerusalem. And they, said, they had it out with the other apostles. They said, is this right? And the conclusion they came to in Acts 15 was that, no, no, Gentile believers don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow the Torah. They don't need to follow the law of Moses in order to follow Jesus, in order to be saved. But this people, they kept teaching this stuff throughout Paul's lifetime. And here's the danger of religion in all of its forms, that it teaches you that Jesus and believing in Jesus by himself is not enough, that there are other things that you must do in order to be right with God. And Paul says, it's just not true. The famous British preacher C.H. Spurgeon, who preached a thousand messages, and he wrote a thousand books, He once said, all of my theology and learning could be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. That's what it is to have faith in Jesus. Jesus does it all. He was righteous. He did everything necessary so I would not have to. But more than that, Jesus makes me part of the family of God. So circumcision is first introduced in Genesis 17. We, we don't have time to, to read it, but the verses will come up. And it's a sign given to Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, you and your descendants are going to be a blessed people, Abraham. And this is the sign. This is the symbol that your male offspring are going to be circumcised on the eighth day. And that was what every Jew from that time did to show that they were part of this special people, this special covenant people who God cared for, who God loved, who God protected, who God led. It was very clear whether you were in or out. It was very obvious. It was physically obvious. And in sort of New Testament times, um, 
the, the sort of nickname that, that, that Jewish people would give to those who were outsiders if you weren't part of this special covenant community that had the knowledge of God, they'd be called, oh, yeah, they're the dogs. The outsiders, the dogs. See what Paul does in this verse as he talks to these Christian believers, these Gentiles who have become believers. He says, you know who the true outsiders are here? He says, these people who teach it's Jesus plus something else, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus the law. He says, you know, they've showed just by saying that kind of thing that they have no place in the family of God. They're the outsiders. He says, they're dogs. They're literally barking up the wrong tree. They're outsiders. He says, but as for you, he says, we're the circumcision. By belief in Jesus, not physically circumcised, but spiritually, it's a circumcision of the heart. By the spirit, it says in Romans chapter 2. In Acts chapter 10, when the gospel first came to the Gentile people at Cornelius' house, the, the, the persuading thing, the, the thing that made that credible, according to the Apostle Peter, when he's explaining it later, he says, see, these people have received the Spirit just as we have. And on that basis, he said that they belong. He said, therefore, they should get baptized in water. He didn't say because they've been circumcised. He said because they've received the Spirit. To be a Christian is to receive God in your life. And the external sign of that, if there is one, it's baptism. It's, it's water. It's the coming of the Spirit in your life. But then you say, well, I'm recognizing what God's done in my life, and therefore I'll get baptized in water to show and celebrate what he has done. Here's what Ephesians 2 says about us who were on the outside. It says, remember those that formerly who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Outsiders brought in. Religion teaches that you must be like us to belong. Christianity teaches that you must know Jesus to belong. Religion has tears. It's all about comparing yourself. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm like this, and I'm aspiring to be like that, and th this person here is behind me. It's all about benchmarking yourself against others. Religious people dress the same, talk the same, laugh at the same jokes, Religion always judges based on observable, external things. Whereas the gospel teaches us that we're loved by Jesus before we belong. That our sins are paid for by Jesus so that we can belong. And that he changes our lives. But each of us wears a t-shirt saying, work in progress, as he conforms us into his image. Now, Paul goes another level with this. You ready for this? Anybody here competitive? Anybody next to you competitive? <laughs> so some people are saying, you know, maybe Paul's opponents are saying, well, yeah, but you Christians, you just don't 
You just couldn't cut it. You couldn't do it. The, the trouble is you're just not religious enough. So therefore, you took an easy route of going for this gospel of grace. Paul says, not at all. If it's a competition you're after, I'm your man. Paul would win you hands down at Monopoly, guys. He would. He was lethal. Listen to what he says. He gives us seven reasons why he was the best of the best of the best when it came to religious observance. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's exactly what the Bible commanded. He was an Israelite. He was part of that community of God. He was not only an Israelite, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was a more faithful tribe in Israel's history. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He even spoke the original language of the people of God. He was a Pharisee, a traditionalist leader who was respected by everybody. He was zealous, protecting his religion from this false teaching of Christianity. He says, I was zealous, persecuting the church. He says, not only that, but that Torah, he says, I did it 100%. I got full marks. These things matter if you're religious. Where you come from, your pedigree, your family, how many languages you speak, being respected by others, seem to be passionate for a cause, looking good in front of other people. These things matter to the religious mindset. And Paul says, that used to be my rock. That used to be my confidence. All of those things mattered so much, but he says they don't matter anymore. He sees those things differently now, not just a bit differently, fundamentally differently. He says, whatever were gains to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. You know, today, it doesn't matter where you were born. It matters whether you're born again. Today, your identity is not your family of birth, but it's in the family of God. You know, the thing in, we have in common isn't a shared language, but a shared experience of the Holy Spirit. And our big boast isn't in our achievements and what we've done, but in the grace of God to cover all of our failure. We live in a world where we're comparing ourselves to others all of the time, and it's so draining. Even when people come to church, sometimes they come in and they're just benchmarking all the time. Well, how am I doing today? How they, well, they look like they're having a great time. Oh, no, how am I doing? Leave it at the door. You're part of the family of God through faith in Jesus. We're equals here. There's nobody better than anybody else. We're all children of God through faith, loved by him. Jesus is better than religion. Amen? Amen. Point two. Jesus is more valuable than anything you could ever know. Verse 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He makes some big, big statements. Gains that become losses. Everything a loss compared to Jesus. Um, put it on the next slide, please. Don't know if you're in the news in the last couple of weeks, um, this guy, uh, Alexei Navalny, he was uh, executed or likely executed in a northern Siberian prison camp. He was the opposition Russian leader. What most of the Western media outlets didn't cover was that he was a Christian. And I just thought it was fascinating that somebody facing 
such harshness and extremes and, and ultimately, um, ultimately dying, said these words at their trial in 2021. He said, if you, want, if you want, I'll talk to you about God and salvation. The fact is, I'm a Christian, which, re- which usually rather sets me up as an example for constant ridicule in the Anti-Corruption Foundation. That was the organization he founded. Because mostly our people are atheists, and once I was quite a militant atheist myself. But now I'm a believer, and that helps me a lot in my activities, because everything becomes much, much easier. I think about things less. There are fewer dilemmas in my life, because there is a book which in general is more or less clearly written what action to take in every situation. It's not always easy to follow the book, of course, but I'm trying. Then he quotes Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. I've always thought this particular commandment is more more or less an instruction to activity. And so while certainly not really enjoying the place where I am, I have no regrets about coming back or about what I'm doing. It's fine because I did the right thing. On the contrary, I feel a real kind of satisfaction because at some difficult moment, I did as required by the instructions and did not betray the commandment. Here's somebody who says, you know, there was a higher value set in my life than just doing the easy thing. I wanted to do the thing that Jesus said so that I could be faithful And Paul wants us to correctly value Jesus in the same way. And he uses accountancy language. Who here is an accountant? Yeah, okay, I'm seeing one or two awkward hands there. (laughs) Okay, who here has a bank account? Okay, so you'll get this, right? How many people got paid? If you have jobs, how many got paid? Yeah, okay, just how many of you had a quick glimpse in your account on Friday or Saturday? Just check you've been paid. Yeah, yeah, okay. This is what we do, isn't it? What happens when you get paid? You look in your bank account and you see your gains. You think, there it is, there's my pay. And, that, and then you see other things, maybe birthday gifts that people have credited to your account, maybe benefits that you're entitled to and they've been paid. And you say, okay, there's, there's all of my profits or all of my gains. And then you look through your bank and there's a hundred other things. They're your losses. And that includes your taxes, and that includes um, uh, your, your outgoings. It includes your utility bills, all the stuff you resent paying, but you have to. Your mortgage interests, your council tax, your car repairs, your children's shoes. <laughs> so expensive. Profits and losses, gains and losses. Now, Paul lists for us his gains. In fact, we've already talked about that. I'll just show it on here. He says, he says, whatever was my gains, and he, we know what his gains were, his special status in his position in life, his pedigree, his education, his personality. He was a zealous kind of person. His appearances, he looked good in front of others. Think for a moment. If, if this is your gain column, and this is your minus column, if this is your losses column, if, if you count these as your gains, then your losses probably relate to these. So your, if you lose position, then that would 
be kind of hard for us. Or pedigree, if, if you have stuff going on in your family, when you're very proud of your family background, then you, you might feel like that's, that's hard. If your educational achievements are no longer useful to you, then um, you might... Um, then, then, then you might sort of compare yourself to others. Uh, if your personality is, if you're resting on the power of your winsomeness and your personality all the time, or looking good, or being the funny guy, or the, the clever person, then when people see you as you are, then you suffer a sense of loss. Now, Paul deals with this. In this way, he says something pretty remarkable. We live in Edinburgh. Special status, pedigree, education, personality, appearances, these matter a lot here, probably more than most cities in the UK. What does Paul say about it? He says, everything that I considered again, I now move over to the losses column. He says, they don't matter at all to me. Why? He says, because I've got this new thing going on in my life called the surpassing worth of Jesus. Said that in the verse, didn't it? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. When you know Jesus like Paul does, these things can happily be moved across here. And not only that, Paul says, you know, actually, I've lost all of those things anyway. (laughs) I've lost them. He He says, for Christ, through whom I have lost all things. It's not only that he counted them as lost, but he wrote them off. And he said, well, I've lost them anyway. Imagine somebody gave you a new Tesla. Anybody like a new Tesla? <laughs> Let's just have some honesty in the room, shall we? They're beautiful cars. I was just reading about them this week. There's, there's hidden features that even I didn't know about. There's, um, you know, they can, they can drive themselves pretty much. They can change lane. They can accelerate and brake. There's even a hidden feature that in some countries, that while you're paused at traffic, They'll put karaoke songs on the dashboard and you have a microphone and you can sing karaoke in the car. Imagine somebody gave you the keys to a brand new Tesla and you wrote it off. You smashed it and you didn't have any insurance and the insurer said, sorry, you'll get nothing back at all. You'd feel, oh my goodness. Well, Paul says, everything that we might value about our own lives, he says, I'm putting it in the losses. I'm writing it off. Gains have become losses. You know, we see Paul as this ultimate Christian hero, but others of his generation would have been utterly disappointed with him. They would have said he could have really been something. He could have done something with his life. He could have been an eminent rabbi. He could have been a great leader. He could have been a politician. You know, a normal response in our culture and any culture to loss, traumatic loss, is sadness, grief, exhaustion, numbness, confusion, anxiety. 
But it might seem odd that Paul doesn't have that reaction because he's moved over to this economy. Because because of how amazing Jesus is, I've moved all this stuff over to here. I'm counting it as loss anyway. So, So when I lost it all, I didn't have a trauma response. I didn't suddenly think, oh, I've got to sort myself out here. He said, because actually, I realized that all of that was garbage. And if you've ever read these verses or heard preaching on them before, you'll know that the word for garbage uh, in, the, in the Greek could equally be dog poo. It's the stuff you scrape off your shoe. That's how Paul saw these things that are valued so highly because Jesus was worth so much more. Jesus told a parable about a pearl of great price and a treasure in a field. Here's the question. What is it that Paul says about Jesus that is so amazing? Well, it's knowing him and it's knowing what he's done. Sometimes people say, well, I don't want to know about God. I just want to know him. I don't want to know about Jesus. I just want to know him personally. As if there's some, some kind, of, kind of, if that's a real thing. You know, if, if, if your spouse, you came home and your spouse started telling you all about their day and the things that excited them and the things that were difficult, and then you just said, just, just shut up, please. Shut up. I want to know you. Let's say, weirdo. You get to know me by knowing about the things I'm excited about and the things I do. And we get to know about Jesus, not just from who he is, by what he does. And Paul lists some things about Jesus, who he is and what he does. And he says, I want to be found in him. It's an experiential thing of knowing him. But then he says, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God. He's saying this, here's the best thing about my relationship with Jesus. He says, it's not based on me. It's not based on whether I'm doing well or whether I'm not doing well. It's based on him. You know, if my relationship with Jesus was based on how I felt when I got out of bed, then it would truly be a cause for anxiety and concern. But do you know what it's not? My relationship with Jesus, my standing is based on who Jesus is. And his righteousness. Robert Murray McShane said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And he is. Jesus is praying for you right now. It's his faith. Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. You know, his power is evidently at work in your life. He's changing you. He's forgiven you. He's healing you. He's helping you. He's changing you. But Paul also refers to the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. There's there's an American advert that appears at the Super Bowl every year. It's called He Gets Us, and it's about how Jesus gets us. It's kind of about the incarnation, something like that. Paul is saying something, the flip side of that, which is this. When we suffer as Christians... There's something about that experience that even if we do not enjoy it, we get him. We get him. We get to experience something of the sufferings of Christ. When we feel alone or isolated or friendless, and we bring that to God, we say, Lord, I'm beginning to understand Gethsemane. I'm beginning to understand the cross 
when our health fails, when we experience pain in our bodies, we experience something of him who writhed in agony on a cross for our sake. And it says we become like him. Paul longs to be like him in his death. You know, we tend to become like each other, particularly if you hang out with people. They say that children become like their parents. They say that dogs become uh, like their owners. And here's the thing about you and me. We, we become like the people we hang out with. And Paul says this. He says, I want to be like Jesus in his death. That was the moment of ultimate grace in Jesus' life. Paul says, I, I want to be like him. You know, there, there could be people in your life that you wouldn't like to be like. It could be there's been unhelpful influences in your life. And perhaps in, in darker moments of your life, somebody has said, oh, you're turning out like them. The way you speak and the, 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 your, your anger issues. You know, when you follow Jesus, you become like him. That's the ultimate narrative over your life. He's making you like him. Final thing, he's worth our greatest pursuit. He's worth more than anything. He's better than religion, and he's worth our greatest pursuit. He says, and, some, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead, not that I've already obtained all this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not yet consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards on Christ Jesus. There was no room for passivity in Paul's journey with Jesus. Paul has thoroughly dismantled the idea that we work in order to receive salvation. Chris talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But he does say this, being sure that I am saved, past tense, and being sure that I am saved in the future, he says it enables me to run hard for God, to attain. He speaks as like an athlete who's fully poised and stretched out to win the race, to attain. A wrong doctrine of salvation leads you to either passivity or anxiety. Paul fully rests on God's grace, yet he's not passive. He's straining for his end goal. We must be those who keep devotion for Jesus front and center. There's a, if you follow football, you'll know that when the, uh, the transfer window comes, players of interest for transfer, sometimes they start playing less well in that season. And the phrase that journalists say is, oh, their head's been turned. They're not playing their game anymore because suddenly Arsenal or, or somebody is suddenly going to put in a bid for them. And they're like, oh, this is unsettling. Paul says, nothing will turn my head from Jesus. Nothing. What distractions are in your life that turn your head from Jesus? Eugene Peterson, who translated the message version of the Bible, uh, he, he, the first book to come out was the Psalms, and Bono from U2 had got hold of a copy, and he was so amazed by it. He read it, and he, said, and he, he got in touch with Eugene, or through his secretary, he said, I would love to meet you, and I, I'd love to just learn more about this amazing, authentic translation and how you, how you did it. 
And Eugene Peterson just didn't reply. And his secretary kind of finally got in touch with him. He was at a cabin in the woods. He, he just went through book after book of, after book of the Bible, praying and reading and translating. And his secretary came to me and said, why haven't you responded to Bono? It's Bono. And uh, he said, well, yeah, but I've been busy. He said, yeah, but, but Bono wants to speak to you. He says, I know, but I was with Isaiah. <laughs> See, when your head is not turned, the main thing is the main thing. Jesus. Jesus and his word. You know, Jesus is worth our greatest pursuit. He's more valuable than anything. He's better than dry, dutiful religion. Let me ask you today, has your view of him become distorted? Have you fallen into just religious observance, standing up, sitting down, turning up at the right place at the right time? Has your head been turned by a relationship or a career or a leisure activity that is stealing you away from Jesus? Have you made salvation your seat rather than your goal? You know, it's no wonder those early disciples lived the way they did. The last story in the book of John is an amazing story. It talks about Jesus cooking a barbecue on a beach. And the disciples are out fishing. And Simon Peter, he clocks Jesus and he jumps out the boat and he starts swimming to shore because he loves Jesus. And then you'll probably know the story that Jesus takes Peter for a walk on the beach. Peter has denied him three times previously. And Jesus just asks him repeatedly, three times, do you love me? As we close today, I want to ask us that question as well. And then we'll sing. I'm going to ask you three times. This Jesus who's better than religion. This Jesus who's more valuable than anything. This Jesus who is worthy of our greatest pursuit. Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me?